All right, well, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and grab them and turn to Revelation chapter 14, as we are back in the book of Revelation this morning. And the title of my message is The Voices of Victory. In the early part of 1945 in England, word was coming across in various ways that the German army, the Nazis, were giving out. For the Allies were coming in from the west, the Russians were coming into Berlin from the east, and it almost appeared that victory could be had at any moment. But news was coming out in trickles, and there were pockets of fighting still taking place in various areas where soldiers hadn't gotten the, the uh, retreat orders from Berlin. And as a result, people waited with bated breath to hear the words that the war was over, to hear the voice of victory. They rallied around their radios, looking for and anticipating that moment when they knew that the war, after five bloody years, had come to an end. As we come to chapter 14, 15, and 16, we are going to find various voices that all say the same thing, victory is ours in Jesus Christ. And today in chapter 14, as we look at this chapter together, we will see the voice of the 144,000. We will see the voice of three different angels. And we'll see the voice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in it and through it, they say, victory is ours. I think we need to be reminded of that from time to time, don't you? Sometimes it, it can appear that we're losing the battle. In some cases, that may be true. But in the end, we win because Christ has won. And as we come to Revelation chapter 14, we will see the voices speaking in conjunction with one another, in consensus, victory is ours in Christ. Well, it's summer again here in Chicago, and growing up, I always used to love summer because it meant the blockbuster movies were coming out to theaters. Okay, we don't really have that much anymore. Sometimes they release a couple during Christmas. But I can't believe I'm looking forward to seeing Indiana Jones 19. No, Indiana Jones 5. But I have a fear. I have a fear, like maybe some of you, that all of the best scenes are given in the teasers and trailers that precede it. I used to love going to the movies. Dina didn't understand why I like getting there early. She's like, oh, they only have an hour and a half of, tra uh, of trailers before the actual feature film. I said, I like those. It helps me decide what I'm going to see and what I'm going to avoid. Unfortunately, I've come to the conclusion that often to tease people, to draw them in, they give the best scenes first. Then you see the movie and you're like, well, that was anticlimactic. The reason I say this is because Revelation 14 is a panoramic view of everything that's going to happen from this point forward. It's like that feature you have on your uh, camera on your phone, the panoramic portrait. You see the beginning, the end, you see the whole shot at one time. That's what we see here in Revelation chapter 4. When we look at the literal structure of the letter, many are confused because they believe at first in entering into the letter that it's simply in chronological order, and that's not necessarily the case. There are times where John will insert a chapter looking back over things he has just wrote and filling in some details that weren't given initially. But there are other chapters, like chapter 14, where he looks ahead to give us a trailer a teaser of those things yet to come. And in contrast to what we looked at the last couple of weeks in chapters 12 and 13, he is now pointing us 
to the, our, pointing our attention to, I should say, the understanding that this is what's going to happen to the 144,000. Uh, this is what's going to happen to those left on the earth and those who have received the mark. This is what's going to happen at the final end. And it all says victory. And so let us begin in chapter 14, verse 1. And then I looked, John writes, and he says, And behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, we don't know if this is the physical Mount Zion there in Israel or if it's the heavenly Mount Zion. Either way, Christ is present with his people. And he's present with him, the 144,000, I should say, are present with him, having his father's name written on their foreheads, and stop there. Here's why. He is contrasting those who have just received the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. Those who willingly surrendered their allegiance to the Antichrist, who received a mark on their, fore, uh, on their foreheads and on the back, or on the back of their hand, pledging their allegiance to the Antichrist. God is going to tell us that the 144,000 have five distinctives that you and I have today also. And the first of those distinctives is this, that like the 144,000, Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that like them in chapter 7, we too are sealed. And what we have been sealed with, the promise of our further redemption, our future restoration, is the fact that God has given us the Holy Spirit to live and resident in our hearts. Like they were sealed in chapter 7, so were we also sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are God's, and to prove and to demonstrate that you are God's, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. You were sealed. As they took the name of the Antichrist, or the number of his name, we have the name of Jesus Christ in our hearts, sealed because the Spirit of God dwells within us. And therefore... We are assured that we will be part of what God is doing in the redemptive process. We will inherit eternal life. We will see Him in all of His glory for all eternity. We will be residents in heaven with Him because He has sealed us. The term is an economic term. It means to put down earnest meaning he's, he's put down a down payment on you, and when he returns to take his church in the rapture, you can know for sure that you will be taken too. So the 144,000 who have the Father's name written on their foreheads, we too are sealed in the same manner as they. And in verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sounds of harpists playing their harps. Now, this answers a theological question that some seem to be absolutely uh, just consumed with. Do we play harps in heaven? Well, let me encourage you this morning who are a little bit concerned about harp playing in heaven. This simply means stringed instruments. I personally believe that they represent electric guitars. And it is going to be one heck of a worship concert in heaven. You thought it was loud today or in times past here? Pfft. Trust me, Peter's going to be handing out earplugs as we walk through those golden gates, okay? It's going to be amazing. But it is to represent the fact that it is a joyous, it is a worshipful environment, and it is the encapturing of rejoicing of God's people in heaven. And notice with me, number two, not only were they sealed, number th in verse three, they sang as it were a new song before the throne. This is the 144, before the four living um, creatures. 
and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Do you realize that you carry with you a new song that is unique to you? The term means a new story. The psalmist, of course, wrote psalms, songs, to express events and experiences that he had with God, of course, David I'm referring to. And one of those experiences captured in Psalm 40, verses 2 through 3, should be on the screen behind me. And he also, David writes, brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. And he established my steps. And he has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. The moment you came to Jesus Christ, God began a new story in your life. Whatever your story was prior to that point that you yourself was writing, you yourself were, was authoring, it stopped abruptly. And God said, give me that pen. Because now that you are mine, I'm going to write a new story, a new song, specifically for you. Do you ever notice that the New Testament calls God our, the author and the finisher of our faith? Interesting. This new song is unique to you. And it is meant to be used as a testimony to show others what God is capable of doing in and through a person's life. Notice what he says here. In the psalmist, as he writes, he says, Praise to our God, many will see it and fear. Meaning, if God can do this for me, he can do it for you, David is saying. If you don't like the story of your life, today you can change it by receiving Jesus Christ. And he'll take the pen from your hand and he'll begin to author a brand new story, unique to you. And then people can read that. Paul said it this way, we are his living epistles, aren't we? God is writing something new in and through our lives. And you and I today can be taken into the world for the world to see and notice what he says, and will trust in the Lord that people will turn their attention to Christ. Many have asked me over the years, well, what is Calvary Chapel's church growth plan? I said, well, it's, it's pretty simple. I said, we're going to teach the Word of God, equip the saints to fulfill the work of the ministry, and they're going to go out into the, the world, into their worlds, and they're going to be lights in the darkness, and they're going to have a testimony to share and they are going to be the ambassadors for Christ. And it's through them that the world will know that God is doing something here at this church. That's our church growth strategy. I'm going to pour into you and you go into the world and you share with each and every person that you come in contact with, anyone who will listen, what God is doing in your life. Let them hear your story. You know, often people tell me, I, you know, I really don't have a testimony. You know, it's, a, it's not like I, was gonna, I killed people, then I went to jail, and I got saved, and I came out. And, you know, that's a cool testimony. I kind of look at them, that's cool. I'll tell you this, whatever your story is, whatever your testimony is this morning, somebody needs to hear it. Somebody needs to hear it. The testimony that I have may not appear may not connect with certain people, but the testimony you have may be perfect for them. Don't ever be ashamed of the story of your life. Don't think that it doesn't mean anything. It means everything, and it's one of the greatest tracks, witnessing tools you have to share the gospel with others. You know why? Because, as David said, he brought us up out of the horrible pit, he brought us up out of the miry clay and he set our feet upon the rock and established our steps. He has put a new song in, in our mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Can we say amen to that? Amen. But notice with me, we continue on in verse 4. 
These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among uh, men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. So what is He talking about here? Is He talking about that they were actual virgins? Maybe. Maybe he was. The word woman there is the actual word for woman. And it's interesting that John had no, no problem defining what a woman was, right? But that being said, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Jewish culture, when they talked about virginity and they talked about purity, they were talking about spiritual purity in many cases. That they had not, these individuals had not defiled themselves with the world. And this language is used to describe, read the book of Hosea if you want to understand what spiritual adultery looks like. It is when we are given unto Christ, we are betrothed unto Him, and yet our affections and our love are still tied within this world and its system where we are drawn away from our complete devotion to Christ and we move and place that devotion and admiration and admiring and our allegiance to the world. Notice what James says and notice the language that he uses in James 4.4. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. So he's addressing the people that he's writing to and he's addressing them and calling them adulterers and adulteresses. To fulfill the act of adultery, or to fulfill the act of being an adulterist, you have to be married first, don't you? Who are we married to? We're married to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Notice what he says here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These individuals were pure. Now, Paul the Apostle tells us also that there has come a time in our world that we may want to consider if we want to wrap ourselves with the responsibilities that this world will require of us if we choose to marry and have a family. Now, trust me, God is all for marriage. God designed it. He designed it perfectly. We made it more complicated and corrupted it, just like we've done with everything else that God has given us. But Paul the Apostle makes this case in 1 Corinthians 7. You can look there when you have a chance. And he said, look, you may want to remain single. So you don't complicate your life with the responsibility that married life brings about. You can be uh, available to go and to move and to be led wherever God would have you. But if you're married here today, please don't think for a moment that you're excluded from what God is doing. You're not. You're married today and God has blessed that marriage. And now may I say, use that marriage for the glory of God. As Paul went on to say in Ephesians, he said, let our marriage be a witness to the world. Let them see the gospel in it. As husbands, as we love our wife, as Christ loved the church, and as our wife responds to us, in submitting herself unto us, the world should see the gospel of Jesus Christ and desire what we have. But they were separate from the world. They did not defile themselves in immorality. And notice with me, also in verse 4, the fifth of these points are given to us. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Notice that with me. Follows the Lamb for wherever He goes. Now, it is interesting to me that so often we put conditions on our relationship with God. We put expectations on our relationship with God, and often if we were honest with ourselves, we would have to then conclude 
that instead of us following Jesus, we are asking Jesus to follow us. Instead of Him leading, we're leading. Jesus told us very clearly in Luke chapter 9, verses, verse 23, and He said to all of them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice that with me. Three conditions. The denying of self today is one of the last things that anyone appears to want to do. One historian said, what is necessary to correct course in our culture today is an act of sacrifice. Somebody is going to have to sacrifice somewhere to correct the course of our nation. And yet no one wants to be that one who sacrifices. The politicians, the people, etc. The people seem to be more interested in what is theirs and what they believe they are entitled to, etc., rather than sacrificing so that the next generation may not inherit the problems in which we have created. Now let that just sit and resonate with you for a moment. But I want to look at it theologically. Because there's a very interesting grammatical point that comes out in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. We talked about this on Wednesday, but I think it's appropriate to mention it again here this morning. It's a grammatical note that Greek scholars have discovered in the writings of Paul that really are interesting in their implications. And let me show you what they are. It's very subtle. Now, if you're familiar with the Greek language, you realize that punctuation doesn't exist. Punctuation doesn't exist. It is the context, it is the order of the words that dictate how that sentence should be read. Okay, so when we translate it into English, we are making a transitional judgment concerning how punctuation is placed in various areas of Scripture. Now, if you notice with me in our New King James Version, Notice that Paul writes, he says, but now know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, period. Then in verse 2, he says, for men will be lovers of themselves, comma. The Greek grammar experts suggest that it may be appropriate to remove the comma and to replace it with a colon, meaning that the key characteristics of those in these last days that will create perilous times will be men who are lovers of themselves, colon. That means everything that follows is, is derived out of the fact that they are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, which is the th- last of the list that he concludes with. So if we read it in that light, and he made the suggestion that this can also be applied to the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, colon, and then every word describes the type of love that we are to have as a Christian. It's something that is interesting to consider. But notice with me this description. In light of our current cultural climate, because they are lovers of themselves, if I may say it that way, they are lovers of money. They are boasters, they are proud, they are blasphemers, disobedient to parents, they're unthankful, they're unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, they act like animals, despisers of good, betrayers, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That fits. It certainly describes the culture in which we are living today, doesn't it? Is it because for the last 30 to 40 years we have told people over and over again that their chief concern for their personal happiness is the furtherance or the continuation of their self-esteem? Is it because we have made it? Everything here in America is all about us. Is it possible that we are given phones with cameras and the first thing we create is a selfie? 
is this all derived because we now no longer have, are denying ourselves, taking up the cross and following after God, but it is all about us now. And that selfishness, that arrogance, that pride that is created divides us, separates us. We can no longer create consensus. We can no longer find unity. Is it possible that the Bible is right when it said everyone will be doing what's right in their own mind? Think about that for a moment, if you will. But Jesus said that if you're going to come after me, it begins with you, number one, denying yourself. Then he goes on, he says, now take up your cross daily. What does he mean by that? He means that for you and I, taking up our cross daily, it is a daily decision that we make to surrender to the will of God. Remember, in the garden, the night before the crucifixion, as Jesus was praying there in John 17, he knew that the next day he was going to the cross. He knew what that entailed. And remember, he prayed, Lord, Father, if there is any way that this cup may pass from my hands, so be it. Lord, if there's another way to do this, let's do it. But then Jesus said something, the ultimate example of denying oneself. He said, not my will, but your will be done. If we start each and every one of our days in our times of daily devotion and prayer, and we pray that prayer, Today, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. As Paul says, we should lay ourselves as living sacrifices before the Lord, allowing him to do in and through us all that he desires to do. Allowing him to author that story that only he can author in and through our lives. And then he says, follow me. And that language is very specific. When he talks about following him, it's not that he is in front and we are in back. It's more that we are walking with him, knowing that he is the one leading where we are going. He wants relationship with us. Walk with me. Walk beside me. Not that we're equals. I am Lord and Savior, and you are my disciple. But Jesus is asking us, for that personal relationship in that following of him. He allowed the disciples to walk with him everywhere they went. He was often in the middle, and they were around. And because of that, there was an intimacy found that only can be found in that way. But Jesus was leading the whole entire time, and they followed his lead but they walked with the Lord. Now, these are characteristics that I believe that we can mirror today and should mirror today in our own personal Christian life. But notice with me in verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit. They are without fault before the throne of God. Lastly, they were not hypocrites. Now that word gets thrown around a lot today in our culture and people use it often as an excuse not to be involved with Christians because Christians are hypocrites. And I agree that there are those who are out there who claim to be Christians who are hypocrites. But let me tell you what a hypocrite isn't. Now say you're working on your house. You're nailing up some studs or you're hanging drywall and something slips and it hits your finger and smashes your finger. And the very first thing out of your mouth is, praise Jesus! No, I'm kidding, but I don't want to say what we'd probably say. And the person we're working with isn't a Christian, and they look, oh, what a hypocrite you are. No, that's not being a hypocrite. That's being human, right? Let me encourage you, though, that if you're working with a non-believer, have a few words in the back of your mind that you can draw from if that ever happens to you that isn't, uh, blasphemous to God. A hypocrite is one who's playing a role, one who's wearing a mask. 
who says that they are something but are not. And the key uh, illustration or example of that was Judas himself. Was Judas himself. Judas played the hypocrite. A hypocrite in biblical terms is one who appears to be something but actually is not. That's a hypocrite. One who is playing a role. One who is acting in a role. We as Christians, we are not perfect. And we are going to blow it and make mistakes from time to time. Some more than others. And I'm saying that about myself. But a hypocrite is one who in their heart has never received Jesus Christ. But each and every day they put that mask on, claiming to be a Christian when in actuality their hearts are far from them. That's the hypocrite. And that's what God says that we should not be. In all of this, notice in verse 5, the victory is found because they are before the throne room of God. Because the fate of the rest of the world and those who have taken the number and the mark of the beast will be cataloged in a much different way. Notice with me in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven and having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth and the, the sea and springs of water. The first thing that the angel proclaims, it reminds us of the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross, proclaiming the gospel throughout all the world in an angelic manner that anyone who desires to turn to God may turn, except for one group of people who are incapable of doing so. But it shows me that God is still concerned about the salvation of people during the tribulation period. And in the wake of his judgment, he's hoping that those circumstances wake people up to the reality of their need for God. Now often I've, we've heard in this church talking about people we're praying for who don't know the Lord. And people say, oh, once they hit bottom, then they'll have to reach up for God. Here's the problem with that today, guys, after 26 years. I don't know where the bottom is anymore. How bad does it have to get in a person's life before they do just that? The bottom seems to be a moving target today. It just seems like they need to get worse and worse. And instead of reaching up to God, they seem to get mad at God. Well, why would God ever allow this to happen in my life? It's because you chose these decisions and are now suffering the consequences of them in many cases. If you would have listened to God, He would have helped you avoid these things. But the angel proclaiming the gospel should remind us that you and I each and every day must take time to look for the opportunities that God gives us with friends and family, whoever it may be, to share the love of Christ with them. If he's willing to go this far to send an angel to proclaim to the people, to ask them to turn, to give glory to God, then so be it. The next voice of victory is found in verse 8. As the second angel, and then another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now again, this is a trailer, it's a snippet, it's a teaser of what's coming on in 17 and 18 of Revelation, where we'll talk about Babylon more when we get there. Some believe that Babylon is going to be a literal city, rebuilt. When the Iraq war took place, remember the pictures of Babylon were shown, the ruins of Babylon, saying this will be rebuilt one day. That's very possible, it could happen, sure. Others, though, believe that this is a progression and a finality to a development called biblical theology. Remember back in the book of Genesis, the first real rebellion against God was formed and carried out there with the building of the Tower of Babel. And of course, Nimrod, who is the one who led them in that endeavor has often been used as a type of the Antichrist to come. 
We know later in history that Babylon then became one of the most dominant world empires that the world has ever seen. Of course, God used them to judge his people and to bring them into captivity for 70 years. And now we have the fall of Babylon here in our text this morning. So could it be a literal city that they watched destroyed in 17 and 18? We'll talk about that when we get there. Or is it also referring to the world system that comes to its crescendo, its climax under the reign of the Antichrist? The world system that has been created since the fall of man that has been ruled by Satan himself, the ruler of this world, the political, the economic system that has been created, the fall of the world, the decay of the world through sin and decadence and depravity, the world system that Satan has created, the ultimate form of the rebellion of Babylon has fallen. I think of those who were listening at their radio in 1945, waiting to hear, Berlin has fallen. The war is over. To know that this world system will come to a crashing end, not because of its own de demise, but because Jesus Christ says enough is enough, making way for the kingdom in which he is going to establish for 1,000 years on this earth. Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah 21.9. He said, and look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 51.7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands. He made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, the nations are deranged. The reason that we are seeing the insanity of our, in our world today is because we have bought into the lie that Satan has infiltrated and perpetuated throughout the world. It was predicted right here in Jeremiah's day. Those nations have become deranged. In verse 9, the third angel emerges. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself, the most descriptive punishment is given to these individuals here in the Bible. Notice with me. He himself, verse 10, shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, meaning they're going to be subjected to the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented, that is the one who has received the mark of the beast. He or she shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Once an individual takes that mark, their fate is sealed. Salvation in Christ is not possible. They then have to deal with the consequences of their choice to give their allegiance so that they can buy and sell in this world. God said, you have made your decision and there is no hope for their salvation. I don't know about you, but I don't wish that on my worst enemy. You know, when I think about the tribulation period, one of the things that motivates me to take the gospel into all the world, in my world, is this occasion right here. Because the world will be under such a weight of catastrophe that buying and selling will be a necessity. They will think that they need to comply and capitulate with the Antichrist, but they're sealing their fate in doing so. 
They're going to go along with the masses and not realizing what they have done. John is giving us the warning here, and that's why I believe he has made it so descriptive that we would take a moment of pause. Why? Because we know that those who do not take the mark will have to die for their faith in Christ or for their rejection of the mark. But notice what the Bible says. Here is the patience of the saints, meaning the willingness to endure hardship for their faith in Jesus Christ. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And then in verse 13, he says, notice this, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. It is better to die in the Lord at that time than to take that mark and die for eternity. Right? That's what he's saying. That they may rest from their labors and their works and follow them. Notice with me. John appealing to his people that he's writing to once again. Beware, this is what is coming. I want to, Warren Wiersbe wrote this and I love the way he said it. He said, we must also keep in mind that God has repeatedly warned sinners and given them ample opportunity to repent. The first angel in the series invited sinners to turn to God. The second one warned that the whole Babylonian system would be destroyed. If people persist in their sins, even after God sends judgments and warnings, then they only have themselves to blame for their eternal destiny. How about it? Often when we're witnessing, people say, well, how could God ever send anyone to hell? And I say to them, I say, what would you like God to do to keep them out of hell? First of all, he has to hold people accountable for what they have done because he's holy and righteous. Well, I don't think that's fair, they'll say. Well, then I'll come back and I'll say, God went one step further and he came down himself to pay a price that you could not pay, that through Jesus you may be saved. God gave himself for you. What more would you have God do for your eternal life? something to think about. And as we come to verse 14, notice with me that John now brings us to the conclusion. And then I looked and behold, a white cloud, the Shekinah glory. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory was the glory that filled the temple to show the people that God was in their presence. Here, this glory is now found in in Christ as He now comes and comes to the world. As remember, God the Father said in John, He said, all things I have given unto my Son, meaning that the final judgment will be carried out by Christ Himself Why? Because in a just world, the one who went to the cross and died for us and suffered in the way he did is now able to execute judgment on those who have rejected him. And so now he comes for the purpose of judging. This moment in time was captured in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. As Daniel writes, he says, I was watching in a night vision and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, speaking of Jesus, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I love what Joel said in Joel chapter 3. Verses 13 through 17. Joel writes, God says, put the sickle, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Now the word ripe there is a very interesting word. In the Greek it means that it has gone beyond the point of peak ripeness. 
It is decayed and is, you know, it's one of those bananas that you buy and then two days later you go to your kitchen counter and it's brown. And you're like, can I return this? No. And you, and you think about it, it's like, I only had it for two days. It's beyond its point of ripeness. You know, Dina used to get so angry with me. She said, hey, go get some produce. And I go get produce. And I say, hey, I picked the best bananas. And you know, she goes, those are going to last two hours. You got to get the green ones, but the green ones don't look right. Yeah, but by the time you eat them, they're going to be perfect. It means that the world has gone now past the point and is now in a serious decline and decay. He says here, come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, the sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish in their brightness. The Lord will, all, will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a settler for his people and the strength of your children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. These are all end times prophecy. Mark 13, 26, Mark tells us, and then we will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And that's what we see here in our text. Notice with me in verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him, that is Christ, who sat on the cloud, Thrust your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And there's that word, past and now in decay. So he, he who sat on the cloud thrusted his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the act of judgment in a panoramic view from beginning to end, culminating now in verse 17 to one final battle that will take place. Then, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he had a, also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over the fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust your in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for the grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrusted in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,000 600 furlongs or 200 miles. In this panoramic view that we have just seen and the various voices of victory that are shouted, he is now bringing us to the conclusion. And the Bible tells us that there will be a point in time where Jesus himself will return. And at the moment of his return, he will interrupt this battle taking place outside the walls of the Jerusalem in the valley of Megiddo, a moment in time that we know as the battle of Armageddon. For Zechariah talked about this in Zechariah 14 verses 1 through 5. Let me read it to you quickly. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the woman ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in the, that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. This is at the second coming of Christ. From east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountains shall be moved towards the north, the other half towards the south. This is going to be some event. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach Azil. Yes, 
You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And also in Revelation 16, 16. And they gathered them together in a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. And in Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried cried with a loud voice, saying all, to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of, of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and all the flesh of the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, that is Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast on those who worshipped his image. These who were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. As Joel once again said in 13, 16, I'm 3, 13 and 16, put the sickle in for the harvest is ripe. Go down for the winepress is full and the vats overflow for the wickedness is great. The multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish in their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a settler for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. And notice with me, that as the blood flows from Jerusalem up to the bridles of the horses, you can imagine how deep that is. The furlongs measure 200 miles. It's going to be a devastating catastrophe. But see, the Bible tells us that at that moment, something's going to happen. The clouds are going to part. And we are going to see him on the white horse return physically to this earth in Revelation 19. Every voice that we read this morning can be summed up in the word victory is, is ours. We don't have to wait next to our radios in anticipation for the day of surrender. Satan has been defeated at the cross and each and every person that turns to Christ can begin their new life in him. And a new story will be written in their life that will conclude with them standing in the presence of God for all eternity by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. This is the hope that we have. And all that we read is catastrophic as it is. For you and I as believers in Jesus Christ we were reminded once again simply that this is the worst it's ever going to be for us. It's only going to get better. But while we are here, we have a job to do. And that is to share with others that they too may experience this incredible relationship that we enjoy each and every day with Christ. Amen?